All right, let's open up in prayer. Oh, you can sit in the comfy seats. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity that uh, we have to have a Sunday school class uh, for every age group. Thank you for the opportunity that you give us to interact with one another, um, cross demographics, to interact with your word, to interact with the history of your church. We pray that you be glorified in all that we say and do here this morning, because it's for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, welcome uh, to church history class. We, uh, I did, uh, in the spring, uh, give the option. I'm like, we've been doing this for a while now. If you wanted to take a break, we could do something else. Uh, two people said, hey, I'd like to possibly do something else, and one couldn't even be in Sunday school this, this quarter. And everybody else was like, no, can we please just keep going? So I'm like, okay. So we're, 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 we're still playing in, in church history. Um, and I can see part of why people want to keep going, because we've been going through this whole schmear, and, and the next thing is the Renaissance, and, and, and people were kind of excited about that. If you remember, we, we talked about uh, an introduction to church history to start with. Why are we even doing this? What's the point? Why, what do we learn from church history? And we, we spent some time in that. We looked at the ancient church, uh, in the first century, just after the first century, what do you see going on in the Bible itself? How did things begin? How did they explode from this Jewish sect? Because we started off Jewish, right? right? Right. So this Jewish sect, and then we got kicked out of the synagogue and exploded into the, into the known world at the time. And then we talked about the rise of Christendom in the middle of the end of the Roman Empire. We were smacked out of the middle of the Roman Empire as it was crumbling. We were under huge persecution from the Roman authorities, from different emperors over time, and Christianity just flourished. We went through plagues, and Christianity flourished because people cared about the people around them enough to take care of them during the plagues. We were persecuted horribly, and Christianity flourished and grew healthily because you had to have a strong faith to get through that kind of stuff, right? All muscle growth is against resistance, right? Right. Then we got into the Middle Ages, where Christianity now has become the, the, the religion of the realm. It's like This is the official religion of the decaying Roman Empire, and Christianity didn't flourish so much anymore. I mean, yes, there were people who became Christians because, say, uh, the French decided to attack the Saxons and make them all be Christians. But that's not the same thing. It started getting really weird, really flabby. And as time went on, uh, as the Roman Empire fell, this centralized government, this centralized church kind of fragmented. There are all sorts of bits and pieces and versions of things. And everybody in their local towns were trying to figure this out. And eventually they kind of came to a, a coalition of, of kingdoms that they referred to as kind of a new Roman Empire, a holy Christian Roman Empire. But it wasn't a very strong one, except for every once in a while under a strong emperor like Charlemagne. You would, get, you would get a little bit more centralization. But in general, it was still just a bunch of petty kings. They might come together for things like a crusade, or they might not. If you remember, we talked about nine official crusades, but a couple of other bonus crusades kind of stuck in there. There were multiple times where people just said, no, Pope, I don't think I'm going. Or times where they went simply because they wanted to get back at Constantinople, another Christian city, or because they wanted to get gold or, or power for themselves. We've just finished the Crusades. We've just finished talking about this armed attempt to spread Christianity. And not even necessarily Christianity. Christendom. What's the difference? 
when I say Christianity versus Christendom, what do you think of as the difference? Hierarchy? Okay. A kingdom. Now, Scripture talks about the kingdom of God. We are ambassadors of the kingdom, right? But Jesus even specifically says, my kingdom isn't of this world. It's not like the world's kingdoms. And yet, when we talk about Christianity, we're talking about the growth of the faith. When we talk about Christendom, we're talking about the growth of the temporal political power of the church. Where the church says, not, we're the kingdom of Christ and we're going to share Christianity. But rather, we're the kingdom of Christ and all the rest of you are subject to us. It's a different kind of mentality. And so... We're smack dab in this idea of Christianity as Christendom. There's only small pockets here or there of Christians that are saying Christianity is about faith in Christ. The dominant viewpoint, and it keeps actively, violently slamming down anything else. The active, common viewpoint right now is Christianity is Christendom. We are controlling everybody else. We are bringing temporal power into this world because that's what honor God. Now, when we say the Renaissance, what comes to mind? What do you think of when you hear Renaissance? Renewal. Pardon? Art. Art, okay. Anything else? Science. Science. Renewal of what? I mean, yeah, it's, the word itself means rebirth. What is renewal of what? Culture. I mean, well, it was... Uh, you can, you, when you think of the Dark Ages, instead of actually the Middle Ages, it's... Yes. There is no Dark Ages, right? We talked exactly, about that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But that's in people's minds that right. the Middle Ages were were uncivilized, or Renaissance is more civilized, more civilized. I'd be willing to bet that's... Now, whether you consider that in, in terms of art, Renaissance art, yeah. you think of that in terms of science, the, the renewal of uh, new inventions, new ideas, what have you. Be willing to bet most people, when they think of Renaissance, they think of a rebirth of culture because before that it was all just people apparently just being mud farmers. You know, just it's just, just horror before this. But as we talked about, there was no Dark Ages. There was no sense that oh, we've lost all that. Does anybody remember where that term came from? Dark Ages. What that was in reference to? Why did the person who coined the term Dark Age refer to it as a Dark Age? Nope. It's a good guess, though. Because yeah. it wasn't focused on Rome anymore. It wasn't because there were plagues and wars and rumors of wars and and everybody was, was struggling just to get by. No. It was the radiance of Rome is no longer the radiance of the world. It is a dark age because we're no longer focused on Rome, the classical Rome of the shiny white statues and emperors and things. And so we tend to look at the Dark Ages now and we go, oh yeah, there's mean, nasty, gritty stuff going on during those Middle Ages. It's a Dark Age. But the term originally was talking about the radiance of Rome. And then when we look at the Renaissance, we usually think, oh, because there was this Dark Age, now we're finally coming out of this time of darkness. And you go, no. As we've been talking about, there were a lot of bright spots in art, in science, in logic, in theology, through these Middle Ages, through these Age of Crusades. But, 
we're going to welcome ourselves to the Renaissance today. And we're going to discuss a little bit of what that means. But I want to get a sense of what the knee-jerk reaction when you think about Renaissance is. For instance, when I think of Renaissance, first thing I think of is the time period, 14th to 15th centuries. That's the Renaissance to me. Yes, by the way, it's a time of some different art styles. Yes, it's a time of new inventions, new science and things. But when I think of Renaissance, I think of era. Was it also a time, I think of it as Europe kind of took over. I think of like England and all, Spain and all of them were kind of in charge of everything. Interesting. Okay. Well, I mean, they've been trying to be in charge of everything for a while. But right. we, we are going to see... Um, because there's a relative peace going on with Islam, I mean, because for the last several centuries we've just seen Islam exploding, right? And we've seen the Mongols destroying everything in their paths. I mean, this age of crusades, it's, it's been a bloodbath all around. But everybody is strong enough now that they're beginning to just kind of fight over the fringes, but there's not major conquests. You're not going to see major conquests in Europe by the, by the Muslims anymore. The, the, the Mongols have enjoyed power long enough. Now they're actually trying to work on some politics and diplomacy. The, the, Europe is, for different reasons, going to kind of get past warring with one another and start competing with one another. There's going to be more economic competition unless I'm going to kill you. You're still going to kill you. It's still going to be colorful. But um, it's, it's more... Our city makes the best cloth. Our city makes the best ships. Our city is famous for this. And competing with one another economically. And as a result, since, since you can actually have diplomacy with Islamic empires in the East, and since we're competing with one, uh, one another economically, you start to see a rise of capitalism, where it's like, I'm going to make a lot of money, because I'm going to, I'm going to buy your ships that... that you have no good cloth for and no good goods for. I'm going to buy your ships or rent them. I'm going to send them over here to this Islamic country. I'm going to pick up stuff that we can't get here in Verona, and then I'm going to bring it back here and sell it at a profit. Capitalism starts to rise. Everybody starts making more money. And as a result of that, yes, you're going to see this age of empires as, as these different countries, whether it's Spain or Portugal or England or France, start carving up the rest of the world as they discover it. That's going to happen a little bit more later on, but the, the beginnings of this is going to, we're going to see this now in the, in the Renaissance. So yeah, it is kind of the beginning of Europe going, the world is mine. So, oh, little Portugal. It's like, it's like that big, right? Portugal's like that big, owns tons of stuff around the world. Why? Because of what we're going to see start happening here. Okay? Okay. First of all, when you think of the Renaissance, there's this huge intellectual, artistic explosion going on, right? Okay, I can't get very far before I have to have the funky teaching moment. Get one line, and i got to stop. Because there's some debate about this. And yes, I vetted this past Sarah. I'm sorry that she's not here, but I talked with her about this, and, and she understood where I was going with this. There's some debate as to whether or not there really ever was such a thing as a capital R Renaissance as such. Um, there was an Italian artist named Giorgio Vasari, who first used the term back in the 16th century to talk about how Italian artists are bringing out this new rinascimento, this, this renaissance, this rebirth. We here in Tuscany are the only ones who are really, you know, creative. So it's a little bit self-serving here, right? But he's saying what we're doing is we're abandoning this vile 
medieval gothic style because this is horrible. This is just horrible. I kind of like it actually. I'm a big fan of gothic architecture, but it's horrible because it's old. This is the way we've been doing it for a couple of centuries now, and this is not a new twenty. For those of you that think the twenty, huh? yeah, exactly. Yeah. For those of you, for those of you that think this is a twenty-first century mentality of going anything old is bad, no, no, it's a Renaissance mentality. No, this we've been doing this. For, we want to do something new and special. So what do we do? We look back to the classics. I want you to stop and think about that for a second. It's not that this is old, it's that it's recently old. It's not old enough. Because if something's from the 30s, you look at it and go, ooh, an antique. If something's from the 70s, you go, ooh, tacky, right? Because it's only recently old. You go, well, that's, that's, you know. Well, that's, no, I'm not even going to get it fashion. I'm thinking like decorations and architecture and things. So he's like, we, we want to look back to the Greeks and to the Romans for this reborn kind of classicism. There is this stylization in art that we've seen time and time again when we look at medieval art, right? It's very stylized. Um, I, don't have, I don't really have a picture of something like this up here, but remember, we've seen multiple pictures of, oh, here's a picture of our town. And you say, apparently your town is like six feet wide. You know, because you, you have only three people that can fit in a tower, and they're, they're the size of your walls stylization of art and they say no 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 stylization is bad stylization is tacky it doesn't look good we want to do more of a classical version of realism what's really good is if it looks real specifically if it looks like the kind of real that a roman or a greek would have made all right now what's interesting is if i were to ask most of you most of you what constitutes good art, a good painting. Most of you would tend to say if it looks like what they're painting, right? It's a good painting of an apple if it looks like an apple. That makes it a good. In that respect, Norman Rockwell is the greatest painter who has ever lived. <laughs> because he does this hyper-realized thing. But um, there are other people who say, no, the best painting of an apple is one that makes you feel like you're looking at an apple. Not just you, you look at it and you go, oh, that looks like an apple. One that you go, man, I'm hungry for an apple now. I got this sense of appleness. You know, not, wow, that looks like a summer's day, but you go, it just makes me feel warm. It makes me feel like vacation. It makes me feel that may or may not be the most realistic painting of the vacation. But in the Renaissance, the point was, I, I'm going to focus on detail. I'm going to focus on an idealized form of realism. Okay? So this is, can anybody remember where this is from? Yeah, the, this is from the, the, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. So you've got God reaching out to Adam, and they're both very muscular. And as, as I was talking to Sarah about this this week, she's like, and if, if you look at the Sistine Chapel, as he went along, the more he painted, the more muscular people got. You know, so it's like by the time you get to the last couple pieces, he's just like, oh, sure, we'll put a muscle on top of that muscle. It's a bicep on top of a bicep. It's a tricep on top of a bicep. Why not? You know, just... I want it to look like it stepped out of ancient Rome. Um, so, just, just, as, as, just to get our minds right, when we talked about the Dark Ages being dark, what they were saying was it, it, it didn't have the radiance of classical Rome anymore. Why? They're doing German <laughs> things. They're doing English things. <laughs> 
isn't society, isn't civilization taking Rome to the ends of the earth, making everybody Roman. Why these people are using their own languages, they're writing in their own languages, they're dressing in their own styles, it's horrific. It's a dark age. The Renaissance was a rebirth because it returned to, the, to that radiance of classical Rome. You may or may not see that as a Renaissance. You may or may not see that as a good thing. It is a rebirth of classicism, but that doesn't automatically make everything better. That's part of why, by the way, uh, Louis XIV, if anybody is familiar with King Louis XIV, who didn't reign in classical Rome, and yet this is one of his favorite paintings of himself. Why is it that Louis XIV, who's reigning in like the 1600s, wanted to be called the Sun King? He wanted people to refer to him as Apollo. He liked to dress like this. Why is that? Because he's a good Renaissance man, right? Okay. But he's also a nut, but that's a whole other thing. But there's a reason we say Renaissance in French, as opposed to Renaissance. Uh, the term was actually coined in 1855 by a French dude named Jules Michelet. He was talking about this time being a renaissance, a rebirth. He didn't care the less about art. It had nothing to do with art, nothing to do with science. He was saying it's this rebirth of classical Greek democracy because he was a big proponent of the French democratic movement. So he's like, ah, ever since the 14th century, we've had this rebirth, this rebirth of capitalism and new rights for the rising middle class. A rebirth, just like it was back in Greece. Right? That's what he means by Renaissance. So we take Vasari's comment about his art, we take Michelet's comment about the politics, and we say, yes, the entire era is this rebirth of wonderfulness. Neither one of them meant it like that. What's interesting is he totally glosses over Renaissance kings who are extremely elitist, like Louis XIV, right? Who's sitting there going, I'm the sun king, you're all peons, and if I want to step on your face, I get to because I'm the king. <laughs> Make this beautiful palace of Versailles while my people are starving. Kiss me. That's this guy. A renaissance man. They completely ignore Louis XVI, husband of Marie Antoinette, of Let Them Eat Brioche, right? She didn't say, let me let them eat cake. She said, let them eat brioche. What's brioche? Well, it's, <laughs> it's halfway between cake and bread. It's, it's sweet, soft, funky bread. Um, but do you remember what the, what, the, what, what the context of that was? Yeah, but why did she say it? She's quoting someone else. Technically, she's quoting someone else. Actually, someone else is the one who said this, but she's famous for it. And it did echo her particular mindset. But I think it's her aunt, actually, that she's quoting her, his aunt, that she's quoting here. When people said, you do realize that people are starving. I mean, you're, you're eating these big, lavish foods and leaving half the food on the table. Your people are starving. They have no bread to eat. She's like, they have no bread? Yeah, they have no bread. She's like, let them eat brioche. I don't understand. If they don't have bread, let them eat cake then. Like, no, 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 when I say they don't have bread, I mean they don't have anything. Not, well, then, why don't they go to the, if they have no bread, why don't they go to the pantry and get something else? They don't have a pantry. No, no clue what was going on in the common man. 
not nil, nada whatsoever. Um, so you kind of have to ignore all these if you're saying that ever since the 14th century, everything's been getting more common man focused and things. And ironically, Karl Marx specifically was saying, yeah, everything's been going downhill since the 14th century. What with this rise of capitalism and the rise of the middle class? That's pretty much a horror. So it was... Because to him, he's like, yes, that you get this middle class that makes their money off the lower classes is pretty much the most worst thing I could possibly think of. Yep. So is the Renaissance a good thing or a bad thing? Is Michelet's version of the Renaissance a good thing or a bad thing? And even when you're talking about art, there are Cubists who came in the 21st century, or the 21st, 20th century, like Brock and, and Picasso, who said, actually, the Renaissance had this bizarre focus on realism and having a fixed perspective. It... The Renaissance was a time when we started clamping down on artistic expression. The Renaissance is the death of artistic creativity. We need to break free of the Renaissance. So is the Renaissance a good thing or a bad thing? Is it better art than the Middle Ages because it's less stylized? If you ask me my preferences, I'd say sure. Because it looks kind of silly to have somebody roughly the same size of the city you have them standing in. It's like, yes, it's a Lego town. But is it better or not? It's kind of up to the, the eye of the beholder, right? A lot of politicization of this. A lot of people who have a lot of access to grind about the Renaissance and exactly what that means. Still, other historians say there's no, there's not even a bright line. You can't even say, well, because there are a lot of changes, but they weren't necessarily good. There is no bright line of change. It's just this constant sense of progression. There had already been Renaissances under kings like Charlemagne, right? We've even talked about the Carolingian Renaissance. He instituted economic, political, educational reforms. Do you remember when he specifically said, why don't we put capital letters with small letters so it's easier to read? Because they've been writing in all caps up to this point, and then there were other groups that would write in all small letters. He's like, how about we put the capital letter at the beginning of a word, especially if it's like a noun or a proper noun or something like that, so we can tell at a glance. You just go, I love you, Charlemagne. Thank you so much. Why? Because he was trying to learn how to read. And he's like, this stinks, and I'm emperor, and I say we do this better. And I love this man for this. If for nothing else, I love him for this. It makes it so much easier to read. Or do you remember Alfred, the, the king of, of England? Defended England against the Norse, codified laws, educated judges. Everybody was going to be educated. His judges weren't just going to pass what laws they thought they should allow to pass. He's like, no. We're going to have books where the laws are written down so everybody is always under the same law. And I'm going to make you read those books so that you keep the laws the same. I'm going to base it on scripture. In fact, I'm going to create a public school system that was the basis of what we consider the public school system now. So much so that the literacy rate in medieval dark ages, England, was better than it is in America today. The medicine in dark ages, England, the battlefield medicine in particular, in dark ages, England, was better than it was in the rest of the known world until into the 20th century. I mean, they were doing brain surgery on the battlefield during the Middle Ages, and people were surviving. If you got shot in the Civil War, it's almost certain that you're going to lose that appendage and probably your life. If you just got shot in the leg, yeah, you're going to die. I could get hit, and they rip a section out of my skull in the Middle Ages, and I'm going to survive it. And yet we tend to look at it as the Dark Age. Like, no, wait, there are already different renaissances. Remember Otto? I love Otto. Otto is this great guy who saved a princess locked in a tower. Every 
courtly romance fairy tale based on Otto and Adelaide, right? Cool story. This guy stood against the corrupt Pope who was raping pilgrims on their way to the Holy Land, stood up against the Pope, reformed the church, was a patron of the arts, founder of schools all across Europe. In fact, those schools became universities where they specifically, without cost, took the commonest of common men and said, you can learn theology and languages and history and everything you need to do to be a good priest, to be a good clergyman, to be a good monk. You go to, to college for free. Anybody can go to college for free. That's a Middle Ages thing, a Dark Ages thing, right? Out of which came, we talked about Abelard and Roger Bacon and Thomas Aquinas in the Middle Ages, in the Dark Ages. Besides, I, I totally get, and I'm not, I'm not dissing, I totally get what Randy was saying where you go, you think about this Dark Ages filled with things like bubonic plague and uh, uh, civil wars and corrupt scandals and inquisitions and things like that. That's a Middle Ages thing, right? Yeah. Don't you tend to think about that sort of thing when you think about the, the Dark Ages? Every single one of those got worse as the Renaissance came along. Oh yeah, well we we saw a genocide going on in the in the in the Middle Ages. You're going to see it again in the, in the Renaissance. Although, like I said, that whole massive wars between people between nations, you have less of that because now you're having that economic competition. You don't want you don't want to kill McDonald's. You want to beat McDonald's. If you if you destroyed McDonald's, that would actually hurt your sales at Burger King because people would sit there and go, Ah, wait, burgers are apparently bad. No, 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 they're not. No, you, you want to prop McDonald's up. You want them to continue. You just don't want them to make as much money as you do. But you want them to continue because then it creates a cottage industry of eating hamburgers, right? You want Verona to keep going. You just don't want it to be as powerful as Florence. So I don't want to kill them. I just want to beat them. But yeah, you sit there and you go, plague? Oh yeah, we haven't even gotten to the plague yet. The big plague. Uh, corrupt papal scandals? Oh, you ain't seen nothing yet. Nothing yet. And we've seen horrible things, right? I exhumed that Pope's dead corpse. Nothing compared to what you're going to see. Uh, the Inquisition has been nothing compared to what it's going to be in the Renaissance. Okay. In fact, the Pope, Pope Julius II, was famous for being called the Warrior Pope, put on armor and wielded a mace and led battles, led his armies into battle, led the papal armies in political battles with other kings' armies. So he actually, this is a stylized version of this, but he actually did wear a version of the papal crown as his helmet into battle. Different world. And this is the Renaissance. What? That's so here I am. <laughs> exactly. Well, I, I kind of wanted him to know he's coming. Do you really want to take a, really want to take a swipe at the Pope? Just... Anything that makes you stutter step before you before you try to kill the Pope, you figure it's worth doing. All right. By the way, uh, I should do this. Um, this Pope, this warrior Pope, is the one who commissioned the Sistine Chapel seal. I'm going to beat my enemies to death with a mace. Draw something pretty for me. <laughs> okay. So, instead of seeing this glorious classical age followed by a dark age followed by a rebirth of civilization, you really should find to see it as a history of a progression of change. Things have been changing. They're going to continue changing. Now, it's going to pick up steam at this time, 
in part because of that relative peace as you've got a European empire, an empire of Islamic states, and an empire of cognates. They're all kind of bumping up against each other now and finding a certain degree of equilibrium. So you're going to have a relative peace that yields that competitiveness that we're talking about. But also because in the midst of that competition, if I'm trying to compete against my economic competitor, I want to make sure I get the edge on my economic competitor, right? So I'm going to start doing things like, I'm going to invest in new inventions and new ideas. I'm going to find the hottest young minds, and I want them on my side. I want them here in Florence with me. I want them here in Verona with me. Oh, I'm going to steal them from Verona here to Florence. No, Genoa was the place you really want to go. Yeah, that's what I want. And so I'm going to keep, I'm going to be a patron to a lot of artists, and because I want my house to look good. And I'm going to be a patron to a lot of inventors and things, because I want their stuff. Right? And so you're going to see this explosion of technology. And anytime, anytime that you see new leaps in technology, you're going to see social change leap in leaps and bounds. For instance, have we seen social changes that we can look at and say, actually, this seems to be fairly clearly attributed to the fact that now there's an internet. How does that change the way we look at our world? How does that change the way people interact with one another? We go, oh, we're more globally minded. You go, yes, you have more information, but you do less with it then. Because there's so much more information out there, there's less for you to actually do. You become less interested in what's going on next door and more interested in what's going on in Paraguay that you're not going to do anything with. You go, but you're going to be more connected with people, you say. Yes, from a distance, because it's easier for you to send them a Facebook message than it is for you to go to their house now. So I've got 497 Facebook friends that I talk to on Facebook. It's almost like having friends. I used to have six or seven friends I used to get together with on a regular basis, and we actually saw each other's faces. I do see his face because he took a selfie and put it on his Facebook page. It changes things. Technologies change things. For good or for bad, but it changes things. So, um, when you get to this neoclassical period, I can't call it that because there actually is a neoclassical period, and this is it. But I like to think of the Renaissance as a neoclassical period because it's yeah. 25. Neo, well, it depends. It can either be the neo-neoclassical period or the proto-neoclassical period, depending on which neoclassical period you're actually referring to. I don't name these things. I'm just trying to help you walk through them. But it just it reemphasizes classical Roman and Greek values and art and philosophy and things. But that it becomes the formation of all the stuff that comes later, because you're sitting there going, um, "How would the Greeks do this? How would the Romans do this?" For the first time, they're going to start going, boy, I wish we hadn't burned all those copies of Aristotle. You know, Thank God for the Irish Thank, thank God for the Irish oh, We've been holding on to these for a while. Um, but it's going to change things, especially for the church. How we, literally, how we view Jesus. Because there starts to be a more standardized, even mental picture of what Jesus is like. Because if you remember, in, even in medieval art, you'll see pictures of Jesus clean-shaven. You'll see pictures of Jesus with short hair. You know, once you get into the Renaissance, they go, no, no, no. He looked like a guy from the Renaissance. <laughs> For some reason, this question came into my head. Was there ever a claim that someone had a drawing of Jesus besides the... Uh, I think there was. I think there was something where they're like this. You know, somebody, uh, it was like from the first century, and it turns out, no, it's, it, it really wasn't. But um, we don't know what he looks like, other than the fact that he had a beard. Pardon me? Well, because he was a Jew, although in the first century there was uh, a lot of movement amongst the Jews to look like a Roman, keep, keep it clean-shaven sh things, but it does, the Bible does talk about they plucked out his beard. 
you know, and so you go, that's about it. That's about all we know about what he looked like. He probably was a relatively big guy because people seem to be able to see him in a crowd. Um, he's probably a relatively big guy because he was a carpenter slash possibly stonemason, whatever that tecton, whatever that, that word means, carpenter or stonemason. Mason. Yeah, that's about it. That's about all we know. Um, but again, oh, there's a picture of him right there. It's right there. It's right there. <laughs> Does anybody know what, what, what painting this is from? No, but it is The Last Supper. And this is me being snarky. Because this is what we always think of as Da Vinci's Last Supper. When we get to it, it's not going to look anything like this. That's going to be in a couple hundred years. So, it deteriorated a lot. And that actually is germane even to us today because you'll have, and we'll talk about this in a couple hundred years, uh, but you'll have books like The Da Vinci Code that will say, look, look at this picture of Da Vinci's Last Supper. You know, that is not Da Vinci's Last Supper. But neither here nor there. We actually have to get to the notes, because remember, this is a class of, that was just an introduction to the Renaissance, okay? Half an hour is an introduction to the Renaissance. Because I promised, uh, I promised Sarah I would do it, and I promised her I wouldn't take the whole hour. So, tell her I, I did good. Anyway, so, we're into the 14th century, by golly, and that's the beginning of the Renaissance, by anybody's estimation. 1302, Pope Boniface VII, this guy's awesome, uh, issued his Unum Sanctum Bill. I'll tell you about that here in a sec, but to give you a little bit of background. Well, the cure looks like a U-L-L, check us. Oh, okay, no, it's Unum. No, 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 Bull. I don't want to listen to what I say. Look at what I wrote. Bull. Bull. I'm talking about bull. Papal bull. Uh, uh, the papal bulls are, are these encyclicals that the, the Pope sends around to tell people um, uh, policy or theology from the Pope. So, anyway, yes, bull. I didn't mean bill. I mean bull. Um, so anyway, uh, Boniface come to power uh, about 10 years before by having an extreme conversation with Pope Celestine V, who was then reigning from Naples, because that's where the... He's in Naples, because that's where the Roman pontiff is, and the emperor of the Roman Empire is up in Germany. Anyway, um, but he convinced Celestine to resign because he's like, well, he, he talked about some very complex political arguments and complex theological arguments, but not the least of which is that he's like, you do realize nobody can ever be perfect. And the Pope is supposed to be perfect. How can you be the Pope day in and day out without being perfect? Now, you mess with somebody who's rather weak-willed and has bad theology, and that's going to mess with them after a while. It's like, you speak from the papal throne, and the moment you speak from the papal throne, we've already talked about this, when you speak ex-cathedra, sitting in your fancy Pope chair, what does that mean? It's absolute truth. You cannot question it. You are absolutely infallible. You have to be absolutely perfect. When you speak from the papal throne, that is the very word of God. Nobody can question it. Celestine, do you really feel comfortable with doing that? Do you, do you really feel like you can speak the very word of God that is absolutely unquestioned? You're perfect? No. Maybe you should step down. I think I should. I think we should all nominate Boniface. You go, yep. So Boniface becomes powerful. And he did it not because he was devout, but because he wanted power. In fact, 
It's been, he's been quoted as saying, to enjoy oneself and lie carnally with women or with a boy is no more a sin than rubbing one's hands together. Because what really matters to God is that you enjoy this life. You enjoy this world. You do what makes you happy. You were built to have abundant life. Enjoy it. What? Do we run into this today? Okay, fine, I'll show you. When we obey God, we're not doing it for God. I mean, that's one way to look at it. We're doing it for ourselves. Because God takes pleasure when we're happy. That's the thing that gives him the greatest joy this morning. So I want you to know this morning, just do good for your own self. Do good because God wants you to be happy. When you come to church, when you worship him, you're not doing it for God, really. You're doing it for yourself. Because that's what makes God happy. Amen. I like that picture. There you go. <laughs> Joel Osteen's wife, uh, Victoria, right? Biggest church in America, isn't it? I think so. Biggest church in America. Do we still have this theology today? No. It's about you. Yeah. It's about you. What makes you happy? Don't do it. This is the, I had to show you this because this is the antithesis of everything we're talking about in our services in the last month or so, isn't it? The absolute antithesis of everything you're going to hear me talking about for half an hour later. So, Boniface uh, immediately moves the papal court back to Rome, where he begins politicking against the families who are exerting power. There, he's like, no, we're, we're going back to Rome because that's where everything's hopping. That's, that's the capital. That's, you know, well, actually, it isn't the capital of anything anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's where all the rich families are, and that's where the church is going to go. In fact, he took sides in a civil war within the Colonna family, which is a big, powerful family there in Rome, declaring that this powerful Cardinal Giacomo Colonna had no right to disinherit his brothers. He's like, nope, 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 that's, that's wrong. And Giacomo says, it's, it's my money, it's my household, and my brothers were doing things that they don't deserve an inheritance. And he says, nope, 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 nope. Because the brothers assured him that if they got the stuff back, if they, if, if they were to get their inheritance, they would give massive kickbacks to Boniface. And so Boniface says, all right, I'm, I'm going to excommunicate the Cardinal. Giacomo responds by with accusation saying, yeah, but Boniface's papal reign is illegal because if you remember, it's still technically on the books that bishops don't get to retire. Do you remember that from earlier church? We see that in a couple of church councils. If you're a bishop, you don't get to retire. If you're a bishop, you don't get to go to a different bishopric. You're there. You're, you're there for the long haul. You're there until you die. Celestine is still technically pope. You don't get to be pope. He tried that at least. So Boniface sent papal troops against the Colonna family. And so the troops started attacking them. In fact, by the time you get a year later, the Colonnas are like, fine, fine, fine. We'll surrender. You've burned a lot of our stuff. But we'll surrender as long as you promise that the lands and the family are going to be spared. You know, if, if you promise that this really is the end of fighting, we'll surrender. And the Pope said, absolutely. All I've ever wanted was peace. And so they surrendered. At which point he put them all to the sword and burned their towns to the ground, and laid salt in the dirt. And he said, everything having to do with the Colonnas is anathema. Don't even speak about them again. On pain of losing your salvation. I love Boniface. He's still not the worst pope we've got. He also brought French troops in to, to quell an interfamily feud in Florence. Kind of a big thing going on in Florence. He did so at the same time that he was meeting with a representative of one of those families. Because he's like, I want to work on this peacefully. Come to Rome. Let's talk. 
Let's discuss this. And at the exact same time that he's sitting there talking to this representative, he's bringing in French troops to actually actively kill everybody involved. The guy that was that representative was an intellectual named Dante. Dante Alighieri. Now, funky little teaching moment. Dante is one of the first of what we refer to as a Renaissance man. And I know you've heard that phrase before, right? A Renaissance man, a widely accomplished polymath who has interest in training in several different fields. That's the most succinct way I, I can say Renaissance man. Um, somebody who has been educated in a bunch of different things. They're not just a good soldier, they're a good soldier, an inventor, and poet, and flower arranger. Renaissance man, all right? That's what a polymath is, somebody who has lots of interests and lots of abilities. Anyway, um, he was born into the Guelph family, which is, or Guelphi, which is an Italian version of the Welf family from Bavaria, who supported the Pope. And they'd had this long-standing, centuries-long feud with the Ghibellini, or the Ghibelline family, who's actually the Weiblingen family from southern Germany, because there is no Italy, there is no Germany yet, right? It's still just a bunch of city-states. There is no southern Germany, northern Italy thing. It's all just, yeah, okay? And so are you German or are you Italian? Are you French or are you German? You go, Nobody has that sense yet. It doesn't work like that. It's beginning to feel like that. But you don't have that sense yet. So is this a Bavarian family or a northern Italian family? Yes. Yes. And exactly how you pronounce the name depends on where you're actually standing at the moment, physically. So he was part of the Guelphi. He's part of the Welf family, who, who uh, supported the Pope. By the way, Romeo and Juliet, set in Verona, right? And it was about two families the Montagues, who had supported the Ghibellines, and the Capulets, who had supported the Guelphs. So this is this is a thing, right? It's bigger than the Hatfields and McCoys. I would I, I originally was thinking, oh, it's like the Hatfields and McCoys here in the United States. Everybody knows about that feud. Except this is if everybody in the United States was taking the side of either a Hatfield or the McCoys. All across Europe, massive fights for centuries between these two groups. So when, when Shakespeare brought this up, you go, yeah, I know that feud. Yeah. Even uh, sitting here in England, you know, the Montagues versus the Capulets, you go, oh, the Guelph Ghibelline thing. Got it. Anyway, he was, because he was born in this wealthy family, he had this great top-notch education. He fought as a soldier against the Ghibellines and was a war hero in battle against them. He trained as a, as a pharmacist in this guild. Everybody had to be part of a professional guild. He didn't really care about being a pharmacist. But he was part of this extremely powerful, politically powerful, physicians and apothecaries guild in Florence. And you sit there and go, politically powerful, different world people. Okay, just these guys were important. Everybody needed medications. These guys controlled all of it. Very politically powerful group. And because of that, he became this strong political force. Okay, if you want to think about the, um, we, we tend to say pharmacists don't have power, but pharmaceutical companies. Think about government that. And all. Good point. Instead yeah. of thinking of him as a pharmacist, think about him as a pharmaceutical company. All of a sudden you go, oh. Okay. So he's got this big political voice in the council. Very important guy. Where his passions really lay, though, were, was in writing. That's what he really enjoyed doing, was writing. And I love this. I can't help but like Dante. 1274, at the age of nine, he falls in love with an eight-year-old girl named Beatrice Portinari. 
met, he's physically met her twice in his life. Met her once and then met her again almost a decade later. But he decided, even as a little boy, I love this girl. And, and, and not in a creepy, creeper sort of way. I mean, they really genuinely liked each other. And, and, and he genuinely cared, and he continued genuinely caring. Spent years writing poetry to her. So consistently and so lovingly, they actually created his own style that became the style of Tuscan to write poetry. When she died in 1290, he was absolutely heartbroken. And so he threw himself into study of classical history, he went to a Dominican school, and immersed himself in theology, immersed himself in Latin, in the study of, of complex theology and politics. Now, all of this is to say, this rich, powerful, well-educated, war hero turned politician turned popular writer is really the wrong sort of guy to talk off, right? If you're going to be the Pope, and you want to be a popular Pope, this is not the kind of guy to pick on, is it? He's not the kind of guy to get on your bad side, because he's not just going to go, oh, well, you're going to end up looking very, very bad. This guy is going to be a dog with a bone. By the way, we're going to see this a little bit later when it comes to Martin Luther. It's like, oh, you picked so the wrong guy. We need a whipping boy. Martin Luther will roll over. No, 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 he won't. Neither less. In a couple of years, he begins his, his classical work, this big, huge, epic poem called The Divine Comedy, that we'll talk about here in a second. But Dante isn't the only person that Boniface is torquing off. He tried to cement his power by publishing this Unum Sanctum, right? notes are all about. Tangent. We're back to the notes, right? Unum Sanctum, which means uh, like one holiness, one thing that's holy, one thing where we come together for this. Among other things, the bull said, outside the church there is neither salvation nor the remission of sins. Now, we will look at that today and go, right, unless you're part of the body of Christ, there's no remission of sins. He means outside of the Catholic church. You cannot be a Waldensian. You cannot be a uh, an Albigensian, you cannot be uh, Eastern Orthodox, cannot be Nestorian, and be saved. If you're not Roman Catholic, in fact, I, I, I don't even think those Celts are going to make it. If you're not Roman Catholic, you're toast. Since the Pope is the unquestioned head of the Roman Catholic Church, we declare, we proclaim, we define that it is absolutely necessary for salvation that every human creature be subject to the Roman Pontiff. It does work out nicely that way. By the way, he said this from the special magic chair. Yes? So, the, the, was, the, was the bull also establishing that Pope is unquestioned head of the whole church, or was that already determined? No, they determined that. We've that, already talked about that, yeah. That was already, yeah, okay. Glacius and other people have said, have said that sort of thing for years. You know. Well, that's why, that's why I thought. I mean, that's yeah. to give it. Um, and to be honest, by this time, the vast majority of Catholics would, would agree with that. The vast majority of Catholic Christians are like, fine. Yeah, if you're part of the Roman Catholic Church, the Pope is, in, is the head of it. Okay. Now, there's a lot of people not part of the Roman Catholic Church, or people that were part and then stepped away because they didn't agree with this. But if you're part of the, of the Roman Catholic Church, you're going to agree with this. Thus, the Pope holds ultimate power, both politically and spiritually, over every human being, over the entire world. And anyone who believes anything differently is in danger of losing their salvation. The Pope actually has more power than the Emperor. The Pope has more power than the Kings. If the Pope leads armies, he can do that. He has political power. He has complete authority over every human being on the entire earth. Do you agree? If not, burn in hell. Yes? I'm going to get from the, the church 
church, you know, being the vessel by which kind of you know God or get to God. And this one dude having political power over everybody. Like, what what does the political power have to do with it? Okay. Um, Other than the fact have- that he wants it. Well, okay, there you just answered your own question. But, um, well. so I stand in this circle. The only way you're ever going to be saved is if you stand in the circle with me. I am the absolute unquestioned head of everything that happens in this circle. Right? You can't question anything I say about anything, especially if I'm sitting in my special magic chair in this circle. And so you come and stand in this circle with me? That means you're under my complete and utter authority over everything. Everything. If you don't stand in the circle with me, then you're going to burn in hell. And if you try to stand in the circle with me and say that I'm not in charge of absolutely everything about your life, oh, I'm going to keep doing this. Uh, um, I'm not in charge of absolutely every part of your life, then I'm going to kick you out of the circle. By the way, if you're not standing in the circle with me, you're burning in hell. Doing it like that reminds me of kids on the playground. There is a reason why. It is kind of immature. I'm told, I mean, think about it. Isn't that something that you do when you're five? I'm totally in charge of everything. We're going to follow all my rules now. Nuh-uh, rebel. No, I just think we should, I should be in charge. That's because you're stupid. (laughs) Billy! I guess I'm with, I'm with Bucky, I I guess. Yes, Billy's with me, which makes Billy special. Really? Okay, Floyd, you're wrong. (laughs) Billy's right, yeah. Bucky and me. All right, anyway. Okay, Edward I, we've seen him already, Longshanks, right? This, this absolute tough guy of the Ninth Crusade. Um, immediately withdrew his protection of British clergy. He's like, oh, you know how you've always been under the protection of the crown? We make sure nobody robs your monasteries and all that kind of stuff? You're on your own. Mm-hmm. He's just like, you want to you have some sort of rival with me? Your papal troops are important. Send your papal troops to England then. See how that works. By the way, I'm going to put a sign in front of all the monasteries going, free food, free gold, knock yourselves out. Get through the door, it's all yours. Philip IV of France said, nope, no French funds are going to leave the country of any kind. Oh, I guess that does restrict our giving to Rome. All tithes cease from French territories. And if you remember, France at this time is pretty much all of the western half of Europe. It's like, none of this goes to Rome now. None of it. Boniface excommunicates Philip. I told you. (laughs) You get kicked out of the sandbox. Kicked out of the sandbox. Philip says, ain't your sandbox. (laughs) I refuse to believe it's your sandbox. (laughs) You're a heretic. You're a sinner. You're a fraud. Okay, I'm going to call together a council. Archbishops, what do you think? Is this the Pope you want to stand behind? Do you want to stand behind, say, the most important, powerful kingdom in Europe? And truth? And God? Or this wacko? Yeah, poor Bucky. Five archbishops, 21 bishops agree with Philip. Boniface goes, no, 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 I'm totally in charge, I'm totally in charge, I'm totally in charge. By the way, anybody doing that is not in charge, right? That's never happened. So Philip sends his troops back by the 
the remaining Colonna family, who strangely enough have a bone to pick with the Pope, right? And no lands. So they're renting themselves as mercenaries. And Phil goes, I got a job for you. Oh. Wow. Arrest the Pope. That's right. <laughs> Say that with a French accent. And yes! <laughs> and by the way, because language is important, you're starting to have a French accent. Up to this point, up to this point, it's pretty much been everybody in France speaks German. German. You're starting to have a French accent. Starting to have uniquely French words. Anyway. So, arrest the Pope. Go arrest the Pope. Supposedly, one of the colonists, this is kind of a famous moment in history, slaps the Pope in the face. Because he's like, how dare you call yourself Pope? You absolute slime. So, he's tormented for three days. Nope, they refuse to feed him. They, they, there's different versions of this as to whether they physically torture him or not, but they definitely do various nasty things to humiliate him over the span of three days. And then they send him back to Rome in chains to show everybody this shackled excuse for a Pope where he died after gnawing through his own wrists to release himself so that he could bash his skull against a stone wall. Until he died. Oh. And that's the end of the Pope. Welcome to the Renaissance. Okay? I love this. You go, this isn't even like a modern photograph. This is a contemporary thing of the time. Though. Dead Pope, not... I don't know that he gnawed through both wrists. That doesn't make a lot of sense. I would think you really only need to gnaw through... One, but maybe, maybe I'm missing something. Um, very nasty end to a very nasty guy. In fact, I told you we get back to Dante. Let's end with this. Dante's working on the Divine Comedy, this epic poem divided into three books, the Inferno, the Purgatorio, the Paradisio, talking about this fantastical trip through hell and purgatory and heaven. Because remember we talked about Inferno, which means what? Okay, if you remember the, the etymology of this, didn't start off meaning fire. Didn't have anything to do with fire. It meant below. And so the inferno, an inferno, is someplace below the earth. Like hell, because as we all know, we learn from our Greek mythology that hell is below the earth, right? And in hell there's fire. Therefore an inferno, i.e. A, a cave below the earth, is a place of fire. Language. Anyway. Epic poem, all about this fantastical trip. Pope Boniface is in, the, is in the poem. He's depicted as being tormented in the eighth circle of hell. The second to last, second to worst layer of hell, just above Cain and Judas Iscariot. He's there alongside Pope Nicholas III and Clement V and Simon Magus being tormented in hell. How's that going to go over with people? I wrote this big epic poem about why your Pope is burning in hell. People gonna appreciate that? It was the most popular book in Europe for centuries. So popular in Italy, in fact, that it actually created, uh, and, and, and it, it was credited with making the Tuscan dialect that it was written in the standard dialect of Italian. Dante is known as the father of Italian, the language, because everybody read this book, and everybody said, that's the way I speak now, because of this book. One book, well, three books, one trilogy of poems created a standard language for Italy. It's that popular. 
And Boniface is on the eighth level of hell. For the first time, it's actually popular, humanistically popular, to denounce the power of the Pope. To stand there and go to Rome and have everybody cheer. Do you think that's going to be important as we continue on and move toward the Reformation? Yes? Was it, um, was it published as one, like, tome, like, here it is? Or was it, like, put out, you know, in, in, uh, um, in sections, I, like, Lord of the Rings or something? If I remember correctly, and I don't quote me on this, I think it was published as one big old chunk once it was all done. And um, do you recall the year? It would have been between 308 and three, thir thir three, oh, 1308 and I think the 1320s. Maybe maybe the teens, but but I think he worked on it for a while. Um, that's a good question. I don't know. He, he worked on it for like a decade and, and, and then put it all out there. If I remember correctly, I suppose possibly you submitted different parts, but I don't think so. That at least wasn't how they tended to do things back then. You didn't think of it as a trilogy. You know, if you like this one, wait another year and you'll love the next one. It's not Michael Crichton. He's just more like, you know, I'm breaking it out this way. But it's, but, but if you think about it, you go, um, for as much as, as people hated the Albigensians or the Waldensians because they were against Rome, they loved Dante, in part because he did it so artfully, but in part because they realized how rotten the Pope had gotten. And so, like I said, you're creating a foundation for the Reformation Different people have tried to reform the church up to this point, but you're finally creating a, a foundation for the Reformation by being this stupid, by torquing off the wrong people, and by being so politicized as a pope that you're that you're basically flinging your Christianity to the wind to embrace a Christendom that you yourself are bringing about your own Reformation. More about that next time. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you that there's nothing new under the sun. We still struggle with the same things. We still struggle, not just the Catholic Church, not just the Baptists, not just the Lutherans. We, every congregation, still struggles with a lot of the same issues, a lot of the same thoughts. And we pray, Lord, help us to seek your face. Help us to think your thoughts. Help us to be led by you. Not by politics, not by expediency, but by wanting to honor you first and foremost. In Jesus' name, amen. Question to me would be at this point. So, Boniface is dead. Uh huh.